Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another interactive episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Sitting behind the microphone across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening, evening, uh, radio audience. If this is the first time you've tuned into That's Truth, welcome, and we hope that you join us every week from this point on. Maybe you've joined us for every episode of That's Truth over the last year. Welcome again, and continue to invite others to listen along with you and to be part of the program. Last week, we began discussing the religion of Islam, and we'll continue discussing the religion of Islam and the doctrines and beliefs of Islam. But first, I want to go back and cover in a little more detail two specific areas that came up last week or after the program last week. And the first question I have, Pastor, is Islam is not known for protecting women's rights. In fact, women are often second-class citizens in many Muslim countries. We as Christians say that God cares for a woman's rights. But can you please explain Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14? And let me read that passage. Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14 says, When thou goest forth to war against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into thine hands, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast a desire unto her, that thou wouldest have her to thy wife. Then thou shalt bring her home to thine house, and she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall put the raiment of her captivity off from her, and shall remain in thine house and bewail her father and mother for a full month. And after that thou shalt go in unto her and be her husband, and she shall be thy wife. And it shall be, if thou have no delight in her, then thou shalt let her go whither she will but if thou shalt not se- but thou shalt not sell her for money and thou shalt not make merchandise of her because thou hast humbled her and the last question part of the question is this passage seems to go clearly against god's teaching of marriage can you please explain well i think it's a very good question that the person is asking And I would like to make some general remarks in regard to the question before I begin to deal with the context of what is actually there in Deuteronomy. Um, Let's bear in mind that Judaism is not the same as Christianity. And what we have in the Old Testament is what was common in the area of Judaism. And that needs to be borne in mind. In other words, Old Testament morality 
is not the standard for New Testament practice or New Testament ethics. Uh, we now have what is called a New Covenant, and a higher standard is expected of us than was expected of the Old Testament uh, generation, uh, mainly because we have the full Bible complete. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit who now <coughs> indwells the believer and is operative in the world. And um, generally speaking, we have uh, over uh, 4,000 years of experience in terms of the area of ethics and morality. So the standard that was demanded in the Old Testament is not the same standard that is required of us. Generally speaking, the Old Testament regulations that were given by God uh, to the people of Israel uh, was really to control and restrain the excesses that were common in that period of human history. Um, we must not judge the standard then by a 21st century standard that has been exposed to the gospel for 2,000 years and the Messiah has come and as I said we got the full uh, scriptures today. So let us not be um, guilty of imposing on an ancient barbaric time uh, the same morality that uh, is common here now that we're in the dispensation of grace and we have the fullness of, of Christ and the fullness of the New Testament. So having said that, what I'm saying to you that when you find those regulations in the Old Testament, uh, this is not God's ideal. If you want to know what God's ideal is, you've got to go back to Genesis and what his intention was in the Garden of Eden. Um, it was not that he would have to put these kind of restraints on man. It was not that man, because of his depravity and his sinful nature, would devolve, not evolve, devolve into such barbaric actions. So God had to put things in place uh, to restrain. Now, also remember that uh, these regulations had to take into consideration the context of the times, uh, the cultural practices, uh, the historical setting in which the uh, characters find themselves, uh, the morality and the standard of morality that the that generation had reached, also uh, the economic and political conditions of the time, and uh, all of these factors had to be borne in mind in terms of setting out these regulations that would control the excesses uh, of that time. So what we have here in uh, Deuteronomy uh, is God taking in mind man's fallen nature and 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 restraining and restricting man so that. Um, he doesn't go to excess and abuse uh, people um, because of his sinful nature. In the context of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, it's the context of war. It's talking about people going to war. So this is not, uh, the, this is not the social setting where you meet somebody today. This is, has to do with warfare. And back in, those, in that time, the ancient times, the, uh, the spoils of warfare belonged to the victor. So whatever tribe, whatever nation is fighting against another nation, that one that conquers now has total and absolute control of all the spoils, including the people that are captured. So you have a scenario here in chapter 21 that Israel has gone to war uh, against the enemy, and uh, she has been successful because the Lord has allowed the victory. But uh, among the captives, one of the Israeli soldiers apparently spies this voluptuous young lady who um, seemed to be very attractive, uh, he desires her. He wants to make her uh, to become his wife. So what do you do in a situation like that? You just grab her and rape her. You just grab her and take her to your home and then let her go. What do you do? Uh, this is the condition that you would find back in those days. Uh, we, we had a situation here with ISIS. Uh, gives you a pretty much idea of what would happen in war. 
and they would conquer territories and then they would rape the women and take advantage of the women. Quite similar uh, to the barbaric, barbaric times in which the New Testament was in. Uh, so you've got that situation. So God has to regulate that. So what does he do? Uh, and look at the kindness and the compassion and God's interest in even a person who's a non-Jew, who happens to be an alien, who has been defeated. And now God says, okay, you want her. Uh, first thing you do, you bring her home. You don't put her in a barn. You don't put her in a cell. You don't put her in a shack. You put her in your home. What next do you do? You, 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 you give her a change of garments. You take off the old rugged garments that she had when she was captured. What do you do? You uh, make sure that her hair is shaved. Uh, you're renewing it. And uh, you're also allowing that the nails appeared. But the reason why her hair is shaved is because that is one of the expressions to show mourning and grief. So give her a whole month to grieve for her family. Read the text very carefully, and you'll see that he talks about um, um, if you look at um, verse, 13. Uh, verse 13 she shall be re uh, removed the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in, her, in your house and mourn her father and a, and, a, and a mother for a whole month so you've got to let her adjust to the pain of her captivity and let her now uh, realize that her perturbed feelings uh, need to be calm and that she is now uh, reconciled to the altered conditions that she's going to face at this point. So give her this time to grieve uh, for her family and the loss, etc., etc. After the grieving period is over, what do you do? You shack up with her? No, no. You marry her. If you really love her and you want her, you marry her. And that's what he said, she becomes your wife. She's not your concubine. Uh, she becomes your wife. But like most marriages that are marriages of convenience, a marriage of passion, he's just seen her, she's attractive, uh, she seemed to be sexy as we would say today, and he just wants her, but then the marriage disintegrates. What does he do in a case now that the marriage is just, she's a foreigner, does he throw her out of the house? Does he sell her? Does he make her a slave? No, he doesn't do that. Because you have humbled her, and humbling her mean that he has actually robbed her of her virginity. That's the biblical expression. He has taken from her something that she can never retrieve again. And because of that, he now has to not make merchandise of her or sell her, but he now has to release her and set her free, and she can go wherever she wants and do whatever she wants. Now listen, that is a level of morality that no ancient civilization prior to Israel ever had that elevated level of morality. Uh, you can read all the historical archives of these other nations. You'll never find that kind of a standard that takes such care of a person who's an alien, who's a captive, and do not allow the Jews to abuse her to the extent that she's a non-human being. God had made provision to restrain how she'll be dealt with. This is a level of compassion that no other nation prior to Israel ever displayed in the ancient time. So this is showing you very clearly God's care, uh, not just for the Jew, but even for captives. By the way, if you were to read the previous, ch the previous chapters, you will see a level of God's care that would amaze you. For example, you come upon a bird and it's laying eggs. What do you do in a case like that? If you take the eggs, you can't kill the mother. 
Now, if God doesn't care, I mean, He's so concerned that you don't ro- you rob the, the, the bird of her, her eggs. Now you're going to rob her of her life too. God said you take the eggs, but you leave the mother. That entire chapter is showing you a dimension of compassion that the ancient world was foreign to. So, now that brings me to the next point that um, is this a substandard in terms of Christian marriage? Of course it is. Again, I repeat, the laws in the Old Testament were never the ideal laws uh, for ethics. There were always restraints placed on man excess. Now remember what our Lord said that, take divorce for example. He said on one occasion that uh, Moses did not command divorce. Moses permitted divorce, but it was not God's will from the beginning. So because of man's human weakness, human's depravity, and man's spiritual impotence, God made allowances for those, uh, made concessions for those weaknesses. That when we come to the the New Testament now, it is clearly a different story. Our Lord brought us back to God's original plan in Matthew chapter 19, that, uh, that marriage is not something that is temporal, it is permanent between two, and whom God have joined together, let no man uh, tear asunder. So you can't use the Old Testament as a standard for marriage. But what you have in the Old Testament is an elevated morality that was completely unique to Israel, and all the surrounding nations uh, would never have never come to that level of morality where they care enough to make sure that if you take advantage of a person, you don't abuse them to the extent that they are non-human. Uh, if you have done something that's abusive, you compensate by giving them the freedom. So, uh, and, uh, so it is clearly not the biblical standard for the New Testament, but it also is highlighting the elevated standard that God imposed in the Old Testament to restrain human access. When we come to the New Testament, we've got a different ballgame now, uh, and that is spelled out more clearly in, in the Gospels and also in Paul's writings, especially in Corinthians. You're listening to That's Truth. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? You can call and be put live on the air. Call one 462 7420 or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 7821454. Now secondly, before we uh, let me yeah. just inject here again because the person asked the question against the background of Islam's treatment of women. Yeah. Islam don't even have this level Old Testament level in the Quran. So we in the New Testament we've got even a higher level than the Old Testament, but Islam doesn't even come close to what we have here in the Old Testament. As I have said before, I, I am very very convinced that the Islamic faith is actually a reproduction uh, or redaction of the Old Testament, but it's never been upgraded because there's no new covenant in the Islamic faith. That's why they've got all of these uh, ancient laws about cutting off people's hands and and so on and so forth. Uh, But uh, Christianity has a far higher level of of morality and uh, in, 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 in relation to women. No other religion in the entire world has ever elevated women to the standard that they are today. Were there no Christianity, uh, a lot of the women who got so much freedom that they're abusing it, uh, they would find themselves in an intolerant world where they're almost like chattel as they are in the Islamic world. Now, you said no other religion in the world. What about those that would say, that's why we don't need religion anymore. Religion's brought women to this level now, but now we put religion aside and we're going to elevate women's rights even further. Well, you're going to have to put restraints. Uh, you must have some control. Uh, liberty without freedom leads to chaos. Uh, 
So if you're talking about having uh, liberty and freedom and elevating uh, women to whatever level, you're still going to have which. And here's where we're going today. We're now taking that level of freedom of women, and women are becoming like men, and men are becoming like women. In other words, the distinctions are gone. When you erase the distinction, there has to be freedom, and there has to be form within freedom. And where we're missing out today is that we want all this excess freedom, but we don't have no form to control it, and it eventually is going to lead to moral chaos, and that's where we're headed. So you still need the scriptures, you still need moral parameters that limit the extent to which we exercise our freedom. And that is where the biblical balance comes in. And the Western world is now trying to maintain morality when it has destroyed the base of morality. And it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a house that has a superstructure, have knocked down the foundation, and can't understand where the superstructure is falling. And it's going to collapse eventually unless we return to biblical truth and biblical standards. Very clearly well stated. Now, last week we were discussing Islam, and we went off a little bit last week just to clarify that the nation of Islam is not the same as the religion of Islam. Can you give some further clarification as far as the differences between those two? Let me um, make it very clear that the the black Muslim movement in America, uh, what is called the nation of Islam, really is a fusion between religion, politics, and black nationalism. That's what it is. It's not purely a religious faith. Um, uh, It's an Afro-American religion that really is trying to elevate black America. That's what it is all about. There is a political factor, there's a religious factor, there's a nationalistic factor, and there's also an economic factor involved in the whole process. It's a combination of several elements uh, today. Uh, Let me just mention how this thing started, and you see that's how the distinction is from from current uh, orthodox Islamic faith. Uh, The black Muslim movement, or the Nation of Islam movement, started in um, 1913, uh, where uh, a black man from North Carolina, his name was Timothy Drew, um, he arrived in New York, uh, Newark, uh, New Jersey, under the name of Noble Drew Eli. He founded what is called the Moorish American Science Temple, and he based that on the doctrine that blacks were of Moroccan, Moroccan origin, called the Moors and that Jesus Christ was a black man and he was killed by white Romans. This is his basic thinking and philosophy and doctrine. Um, He got most of his teaching from the book called The Aquarium Gospel, a book written by a man called Levi Dowling. Uh, But the the whole idea was that uh, Islam was the true religion for the black man in the, in the in a white community and it was tired of white supremacy and is now going to elevate the blacks and just like the whites had Christianity they needed something outside of Christianity and that's where he brought in this Muslim factor but that is how it uh, so then um, after uh, Eli died the guy that really, really uh, pushed this new thing was a guy called Wallace Fard. Um, he was a door-to-door salesman from Detroit, and he arrived on the scene claiming that he was a reincarnation of Eli. In other words, 
uh, Eli's spirit really had taken over him and he was now Eli's reincarnation. He also claimed that he was born in Mecca and sent to the U.S. uh, in order to redeem the black man from the Caucasian devil. Did anyone check out the historicity of that statement? Well, I don't think... Remember, this is back in the 60s and the 70s with the racial civil rights movement where there was a lot of racism in America and and blacks, um, some couldn't ride in the bus. So this was not the mood to check facts. These are people that live in a very emotive era where America was almost going to explode. I think I could remember those days myself with black power movement in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, in Trinidad. It was in that era. But he came at that precise time, and at that historical moment, people were willing to listen to him about this uh, this black um, movement uh, where Islam is, is now calling the black man to elevate the black man. Um, one of Farad's uh, spokesmen was a guy called Elijah Muhammad. His, his name, former name, was Robert Poole, and uh, he helped Fard found the Nation of Islam. Now, Elijah Muhammad uh, insisted that Fard was an incarnation of Allah. So, so uh, this Fard that started it now is now God. He's Allah incarnated. And, uh, but then Fard mysteriously disappeared in 1935, and Muhammad, uh, Elijah, uh, took over the leadership of the organization. Uh, Elijah Muhammad is the same one that mentored Malcolm X, um, Louis Farrakhan. He was mentored by, by um, Elijah Muhammad and also Muhammad Ali. Remember, he used to be Classius Clay and he became Muhammad Ali. All of these guys now were mentored by this guy, Elijah uh, Muhammad. He was seen as a messenger of Allah. And he was imprisoned because he objected to the Second World War and he was put in prison. And while he was in prison, he recruited a lot of black prisoners for the Nation of Islam and for the cause of the Nation of Islam. Uh, his message was very simple, Elijah Muhammad. One, while his father was God, he was the Messiah predicted by the Christians, and he was the Mahdi predicted by the Muslims. He fulfilled the promise that a Messiah is coming. Uh, two, the white race were crea- created by Yaqub, which was a black scientist. Thirdly, Allah had allowed the white race to rule for 2,000 years. Now, in 1914, their time had come to an end. It was no time for the black man to elevate himself, etc. And fourthly, the time was now for the nation of Islam, uh, who were the chosen blacks of Allah, uh, and they would now control the world. That is the philosophy behind the the nation of Islam, how it started the black Muslim movement. Now, I want to also mention the guy Malcolm X. Um, he was the leader in the temple in uh, New York, um, and he was the mouthpiece for Elijah Muhammad, a very eloquent evangelist, that is Muslim evangelist, to spread the news of black nationalism and the Islamic faith. But then he made a trip to Mecca, and he saw that Islam was not just for the blacks, he saw uh, what you see the Eastern people who are not black, worshipping, um, whites worshipping, or everybody from all over the world coming to Mecca. And he realized that this, this um, 
this hate of whites, this hate of other races, this elevation of black nationalism. So he he uh, he he turned away from that, and he began to follow orthodox Islamic faith, and he was murdered. He was murdered, and um, he, he was, was mur- actually murdered. By- yeah, he was shot. He was actually shot by a guy called Thomas Hagen, uh, and his his uh, Islamic name was. Uh, Talimaj X Hare, uh, but he was actually uh, murdered, literally murdered. He was expelled from Islam, from the Black Islam movement, because he was now trying to move the movement in the Orthodox to accept all people rather than just the blacks within the movement. And uh, so that is what happened. He was murdered in 1965. Um, the other c- character that need to be mentioned that. Um, when uh, Elijah Muhammad died, Louis Farrakhan thought that he would have been able to take over. But it was turned over to Wallace Muhammad, who was the son of Elijah Muhammad. And what happened about uh, Wallace Muhammad is that he knew he had to change the rhetoric of uh, Islam and the strident racial invectives that were becoming common to the movement that was creating tremendous fear and dread among the whites in America, he moved Islam from uh, that image and he softened the rhetoric and uh, what he did is to bring Islam in line with orthodox uh, Islamic faith. And he himself um, ended by uh, resigning from the organization he had formed and becoming part of the Orthodox Muslim movement as a leader. When that happened, though, those that didn't like that, that didn't appeal to, opposed it, and it was split into three sections. And one of those people that um, moved away was Louis uh, Farrakhan. He actually uh, reestablished this uh, Nation of Islam movement and he became the, the, the chief spokesman. And he's, as you know, if you listen to any of his speeches, very militant, uh, very uh, black conscious, uh, very anti-European, anti-white, very anti-Jew. Yeah. But he has changed uh, somewhat because when he came down with cancer in about t- t- 2000, uh, uh, he began to move the movement in the direction of orthodox um, um, Islam. But uh, he's still very, very militant in that regard. That, in just in essence, is, is what um, the black Muslim movement is about. But it, it differs from the doctrine because um, to claim that this guy is a reincarnation of Allah, uh, to claim that this guy is the, uh, the Mahdi, uh, and to claim that he's the Messiah of the Christians, the Muslim eschatology, which we hope to get to, they do have an eschatology of things to come. And they say the Magi to come and the Messiah to come is Jesus. Jesus is coming back because Jesus never died. He was taken directly to heaven. So it contradicts Orthodox Islamic faith. And that's why there has been a clash between the black Muslim movement and the Orthodox faith. I want to play an audio clip. It's one minute, uh, just over a minute long. And this comes from when Farrakhan was being introduced in May of 2018. He was being introduced by one of his uh, fellow uh, followers, Nation of Islam, Abdul Hakim Muhammad. When Allah gives gifts, no one gives gifts like Allah. 
So we were blessed in 1955, which wasn't an accident that it was in the year, the 400th year of our sojourn in the West. And it was prophesied that after 400 years that God would come. Allah God came to us, not just in person, but he deposited his full self in the most honorable Elijah Muhammad and deposited his full self in the honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. You didn't hear what I said. I said, God Almighty, not a spirit in the sky, not a spook, but a human being, a live, living man. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. It's the greatest honor of my life to have been given an opportunity to come out of spookism and to come into the knowledge that God is a man. So my question, Pastor, is can we really say God is a man? This is the folly of the Black Muslim Movement. Uh, it is equating a man with God. And in actual fact, uh, there's only one person who ever became God, and that was Jesus Christ. When I say took on, God took on the form of man, and uh, so this is this is part of the folly of the the movement. It's a there's no um, um, there can be no reconciliation between uh, the Black Islam movement and the Christian faith. The doctrines are poles apart. We worship Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. They recognize uh, um, reincarnation of God in both Elijah Muhammad and now in Louis Farrakhan. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. It's contrary to reincarnation. So uh, this is why when people make the silly uh, statement that all religions are like and all, you know, there's just some minor differences, people like that are people who don't really think very carefully. That's like people saying the UPP and the Labour Party are the same. You tell people that and you've got war. And we've got far more major differences between Christianity and the Muslim faith, yet people are not willing to be uh, as as critical and observant um, as that would be. But why is it that the nation of Islam has been so attractive or has grown so much? Now, relatively speaking, it's a relatively small organization. There's maybe 50. I saw someone who said 70,000 people mm-hmm. who are following. But what what makes it so attractive? Well, there's several factors. Uh, I just mentioned, you go back to the history of the times, which created the environment for the black Muslim movement. Um, as I get, Again, the the racial uh, tension in America during the 60s and the 70s, you cannot understand the black Muslim movement without understanding that situation. Um, they, they, they saw it as a means of, and by the way, the whole idea behind this black Muslim movement is to get seven states, that the, the America would cede seven states to them for oh, okay. a black nation. Uh, including uh, one was um, Mississippi and Georgia, etc. That that was the whole idea that we'll have seven states for ourselves, and we'll have a black nation, have a white nation, a black nation. Okay, that is the thing. And not only that, what they did is that they offered the um, the black man a vision of um, uh, a rising supremacy and that they can uh, come beyond where they are and be elevated. Uh, 
uh, to control their own destiny. And that's why they bought thousands of acres of land and went into agriculture and micro-businesses and started. In other words, they created a, a, a generation of entrepreneurs to develop black businesses and black enterprises, etc., etc. The whole idea was to create a black nation so that they become totally uh, self-sufficient and independent of, of white America. That was attractive, and it's still attractive to many blacks uh, in America. And then the other thing is that they went into the ghettos and uh, offered these people uh, a hope by instilling discipline, by getting them into into jobs, by getting them into businesses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they began to salvage that. And what they did, they used the the concept that the drugs was a white man's plot to destroy the black man. So when you tell youth that, you know, to motivate them to come out of that. Yeah. Uh, so you can see if you were a black person back then and you've got this kind of a vision, here you are in the ghetto, here you whatever it is, and then by stressing the concept of inequality all the time and disparities all the time, it, it, it breeds discontent and it pushes people uh, into that, 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 that direction. Even now when you listen to the rhetoric, of Farrakhan, he's a bitter man, he's an angry man. He doesn't come across as a person who has compassion, who wants to heal the nation. Yeah. He wants to divide the nation. Uh, and so it's very, very clear. But that was attract and still attractive to... So a lot of uh, black youth that were in the ghettos began to put their life together and uh, began to be offered opportunities, be given a vision, a much larger vision, and that's why it's grown. Um, but that is that is the, 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 the appeal of it. It's, as I said, it's not just... And then they got politically involved. Remember the, uh, the Million, million Man March? Yeah. Remember also that when Jesse Jackson ran for president, Fry Khan and the black Muslims were totally throw the support behind him. Remember when Obama, again, they throw the support behind, behind that? So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not just a religious movement. It's an economic movement. It's a black consciousness movement. And... Uh, so it's that fusion and that appeal uh, to, for racial elevation and racial uh, on, on par, um, that is part of the attraction of the, 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 uh, the Muslim movement. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Thank you for joining us on That's Truth. And the time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.05. If you have a question for Pastor Murphy or a thought that you'd like to share, you can contact us by calling one 268 462-7420. I'll give that to you again, and that's the number to be put live on the air. 268-462-7420. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. You can also join us live on Facebook Live if you'd like to see behind the scenes what goes on in the studio during face during the program that's truth and if you have a question you can comment it on the video feed and it'll get passed along to pastor murphy now last week we talked about orthodox islam and the history of islam and that there's uh, sunni and shiite sects of islam uh, 
the important individuals in Islam, especially Muhammad, the Quran, and the five pillars of Islam. Pastor, I want to pick up this week with going through some of the key doctrinal beliefs or peculiar doctrines of the Muslim faith of Islam. What Can you remind us and then explain to us, what do they teach about Christ and maybe compare Christ to Muhammad? Well, let's, let's, let's um, do exactly that in, in doing a comparison between uh, Christ and uh, Muhammad. Uh, let's, let's do a contrast. Uh, let's take the matter of death. Uh, we know that Jesus Christ died and rose again. We know that Muhammad died, but Muhammad's grave is there. He never came out of the tomb. So clearly, when you look in terms of um, uh, Christ, that is an element. Uh, remember that Muhammad conquered by the sword. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that he sustained his initial group when they were taken out, thrown out of Me- Mecca, and uh, is that he would rob caravans. Uh, when you compare that, there's no, there's no the, the morality between what he did and what Christ did. So Christ said, you don't live by the sword, you die by the sword. Muhammad um, said he heard from God through uh, Gabriel, the angel. Christ did not hear from God. Christ was God. He was God in the human flesh. He was in the bosom of the Father. Um, Muhammad is identified as a prophet. Uh, Christ is identified as the Son of God and the one who became incarnated. So there's no comparison. You're dealing with a man in contrast to the man who was a God-man. Muhammad allegedly uh, received instructions from the angel Gabriel. Christ gave instructions to the church. He is the teacher of the church. He's superior to the church. Um, Christ never killed anyone. Muhammad and his group slaughtered thousands in the process. Um, Muhammad had power to take life. Christ had power to give life. Uh, Muhammad was married to over 20 white women. Christ was never married. He remained celibate. He never violated the biblical prince of one man and one woman. Um, and then the other thing is that you need to remember is that there's no resurrection for Christ in, ter- uh, in terms of the, the, the Muslim's faith is concerned. He never died and he never resurrected. He's not the son of God. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest heresies that you can ever do is to have a partner with God. God has no partners. God is singular. See, So when you take that, that contrast, clearly uh, Muhammad is just a man who was a prophet of Allah. Christ is God's final word. Uh, read the book of Hebrews. God has spoken to us in these last days by his son. Uh, so what, what we claim for Christ, the Muslims claim for Muhammad, that he is the final prophet. He's an advanced prophet to Jesus. They would say that Christ was Allah's prophet for his time. Allah is, uh, Muhammad is now God's prophet for this time. See, So they elevate Muhammad above Christ. Christ. So you're taking a man and putting above God's Son. All of that we would consider to be heretical. So when it comes to Christ, uh, he was virgin born. He was sinless. They will teach you that. He never died on the cross. He never was resurrected. 
He is not deity. He did not die for anybody's sins. He was taken directly to, to heaven where he is waiting the last days when he will return and he will save the, the world and evangelize the Jews and the Christians and will all become Muslims. One thing that I found very interesting as I was doing some research on Islam, I came across the testimony of a young man who actually was with uh, the ministry of Ravi Zachariah. Uh -huh. And his name is Nabel Kirishi. And he shares, he was a Muslim, and he shares what was key to him becoming a Christian. And I'll share more later on in the program as we talk about witnessing to Muslims. But one of the key things that started him in becoming a Christian is a Christian encouraged him to compare Muhammad to Jesus and the respect that they have for Mom, Muhammad and compare it to the respect that the Bible has for Jesus. And that's where the Holy Spirit began to bring conviction and open his eyes. Let me use some other contrast again uh, between, the, I mean, Muhammad would tell you that they will admit he did no miracles. Christ did countless miracles. You read John, if what the Lord did was written in the book, it couldn't even fill, basically. Yeah. Uh, Muhammad fulfilled no prophecies. Christ fulfilled Old Testament prophecy after an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Genesis right down to Malachi. They are prophetic words of the Messiah when he comes. This is what the credentials would be. This is how you know him. Muhammad has no credentials like that. Uh, Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice, not for himself, but for the whole world. Uh, Muhammad saved his own life many, many times uh, when he was in jeopardy. Uh, Christ never sinned. The, the Muslims would admit that. Muhammad would admit that he's a sinner. Okay, Christ never kept slaves. Muhammad kept slaves. Uh, Christ was virgin-born. Muhammad was never virgin-born. Uh, Muhammad said he received the voice of God through the angel. Christ revealed the voice from God directly. My Father speaks, and I do what I do. Christ did so much for women and spoke so well of women. Muhammad said that women were half as smart as men, that the majority of them are going to hell, and that women could be mortgaged. What a contrast between these two. Wow. So they are miles apart in terms of the character, uh, virtuous nature, uh, uh, the divine divinity, etc., etc., standards, uh, you know, it's just there's no comparison whatever, uh, whatsoever. It's like looking at light and darkness. To be very honest with you, let's spend a minute looking at what Islam says about man and compare it to what the Bible says about man. Well, in connection with man, uh, man was not born with a sinful nature. Man is born spiritually neutral. Man is fully capable of obeying God and all the requirements of God requires completely. Even when man sins, he still has the capacity to obey God, to please God. Uh, the reason why uh, man sin is because he's personally weak and he will sin, right? But the fact is he was not born with a sinful nature. Um, so if he's not born with a sinful nature, he doesn't need anybody to die for him. What he needs to do is to just discipline himself, 
to follow Allah, obey the rules of Islam, follow the five pillars, and do more good than you do bad good, bad works. And when you get to heaven, you'll be put in a scale. And those who do more good than bad, you get to heaven, provided, of course, you follow Allah. That's in contrast to the biblical doctrine of, of sin, that man deliberately chose to be to sin. As a result of that, man inherited a sinful nature. We call that total depravity. That every aspect of the human personality, every aspect, and not that man will sin the worst in every case, but his mind is corrupt. His thoughts are corrupt. His his feelings, his emotion, uh, his fleshly desires, every part of the human being, and we all know that instinctively that that's how we are. That's and because of that, man cannot save himself even by his effort, that all our righteousness is filthy rags, that we need a divine intervention, and that only God can rescue us. And he did that to a rescue program where Christ came and died for our sins, that we may be forgiven. And that God is now able to treat us as righteous because he takes my sin from me and he takes Christ's righteousness. He takes my sin and then he imputes, the biblical word imputes, put to my account. Christ's righteousness so that God deals with me righteously even though practically I'm still a sin, sin, a sinful person by nature but God has put me in that position I am in Christ and God treats me as though I am in Christ I'm in his son that's the wonder of the biblical doctrine that makes complete sense uh, in terms of man knowing his own condition and every one of us sooner or later realize that our best efforts our best day uh, all of us cry out inside that we are not what we're supposed to be. We are conscious of that. We need divine help. And so there's a contrast between how Islam views man and how the Bible sees it. The Bible sees that man can never approach God and never in his own self, his own wisdom, his own strength, his own means be brought to trust and uh, complete standing with God. He needs someone to die in his place, take his sin, uh, his sin upon himself, forgive him and pardon him and restore him. Do they have the concept of salvation in the doctrines of Islam as far as you're no, aware? No, there's no, there's no need for atonement. Okay. Uh, if you are not a sinner by nature, if you have with you the inherent power that by your discipline and obedience and following the, ro- lo- ro- uh, the rules and regulations and the five pillars of Islam, if you can make sure that you do more good than you do bad and then you're going to be weighed in the scales and one scale is the good scale, you, you, you're safe. Why do you need now uh, the Messiah? Why do you need forgiveness? So Christ never died on the cross. We have a WhatsApp question that's just come in from a listener. Thank you very much to the listener in Antigua who sent it in. Pastor, why would a woman be attracted to the Muslim faith if she was not born into it? What would cause her to convert to Islam, and what spiritual or earthly benefit does she receive? Your guess is as good as mine. I can see, uh, however, um, that if you are a person who... Um, um, are following the the black consciousness movement. I, I feel sometimes that that movement is trying to... to I think... It, I, I, I'm not too sure I'm right in my judgment on this matter, but it seems to me this is where the Rastafarian movement has come in as well. It's like it's like blacks have said, you know, the Indians got their god, Vishnu, and, and, and so on. The Buddha got their god, Buddha's got their god. Uh, uh, the, the Indians got their god, the white got their god, so it's about time we get our god too. And I think these people who push the black consciousness movement uh, tries to make 
Christianity look as though it's a European religion. And they're look, one thing you know one, you can't bring people together without religion. Even the Antichrist knows that in the end days he's got a marriage between religion and politics. Very so you've interesting. got to bring in religion somehow. Man is incurably religious. Hmm. Right? Incurably religious. Uh, and then of course you have to undermine Christianity in order to build up this other faith. So you've got the attacks upon Christianity and because of the unfortunate history of a sector of Christianity in regards to slavery, that is now used as a ploy to undermine the integrity and the credibility of the scriptures and the Christian church because there are segments of the Christian church that compromise with that movement, the 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 uh, the, the, um, the slave movement and there are people who prey on these historical atrocities and uh, try to discredit Christianity but I would like to say to people who are listening go through the New Testament and see if Christ would have justified any of the atrocities of slavery can you say that he would have endorsed that see? You, you can't say that right uh, because Christianity is very very clear and uh, by the way slavery would never have been destroyed except you had a Christian people whose conscience, uh, like Wilberforce and Granville Sharp, who brought the biblical principles and the, the brotherhood of man and the creation of man, man made in the image of God, and the fact that Christ died for mankind. These were the salient truths that were used uh, to show to the uh, Europeans at the time that uh, you are dehumanizing a sector of humanity and you were wrong, and they appealed to their conscience, and it was the Christian principles that eventually were used to bring down the whole system of uh, slavery. But people don't mention that, they just mention the other side of it, because there are people that uh, prey on inequalities in life, and uh, uh, and um, there are people who are willing to follow that. Uh, and and it, it's, it perpetuates itself. When you, when you watch uh, Roots on television, it like it perpetuates this, uh, this, this, um, this, this, this atrocities. It brings it back to the fore with such vividness that the young generation watching that, who have never experienced that kind of thing, it keeps it regurgitating in the mind because there are people who feed on that because they have an agenda, uh, and and that, that's I think what happens today. I've heard it theorized that one reason that so many Western women are turning to Islam is they're looking for some structure, just having the complete openness and not having any kind of structure in society. They're looking for structure, and Islam, if you're looking for structure, Islam has it. Well, you you look at the people who went over when ISIS had the territory, the caliphate, how many people, women in the West, went over and married those kind of people. It It makes sense, because the more you lose your standards and you lower your standards, it becomes obvious sooner or later. The pendulum will always swing. You go from one extreme to the other. You realize that this is leading to moral chaos. Yeah. Uh, the church, no. Which should be leading the, the world in morality, elevating morality and, and setting standards about morality in the area of sex and marriage. Uh, the rate of divorce and the incidence of fornication adultery is very different between what is happening in the world and happening in the church. Sooner or later, people turn away from that, and they're looking for something where there is, as you said, structure. They want order. They want morality. They want decency. And, uh, you know, it's funny. 
uh, that people who complain about the, uh, you know, when people talk about how they dress, then they become Muslims and they dress them head to foot, covered, yeah. their face covered. Uh, it's amazing that if you were to discover that most of these people, by the way, that turn to these kind of things are people who want professed believers in, in Christianity they turn because they want structure. The church uh, believes that it must let down its hair. You see these guys now uh, preaching. They look as though they just came off the street from, from dig, digging a well. Uh, and they're trying to relate, as they say, to the thing. But again, there's a fine distinction becoming too casual and too uh, mundane and too vulgar that you lose that level of professionalism and, and quality that you're looking for. And uh, eventually people begin to turn to it. So I do feel that the attraction of the uh, the order uh, the standards that the Muslims have, I do feel that they are a group of people who get tired of the looseness in, in the Western world and realize we're headed to moral chaos and want some structure and turn. I do think there's some semblance in that, some truth in that. You're listening to That's Truth. This is an interactive program, and we look forward to your interaction. Uh, the first way you can interact with us is you can call, and we put live on the air, one two six eight four six two seven four two zero. Maybe you have a question for Pastor Murphy about Islam, the nation of Islam, or maybe just about another topic and what the Bible says about a given topic, or maybe what the Bible doesn't say and why it doesn't say it. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1268 782 1454. Again, WhatsApp or text. Two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Nathan, let me just come back, uh, if I may, mm-hmm. to the matter of Christ. And how how then do they explain uh, if Christ didn't die? So what happened there? This is the the explanation that they give. They have more than one explanation. Uh, number one, uh, there's some people that believe that Jesus's visage, his face, was superimposed on another person, and they crucified that person in place of Christ. There's those that believe that it was Judas Iscariot that was crucified and not Jesus himself. And then the third view is that he was taken directly to heaven where he is in paradise and he is going to be the next Madi that's going to return. So there was no death of Christ. Now if there's no death, there's no resurrection. See, hmm. So Islam t- teaches there's no death of Christ and there's no resurrection. Now that undermines the very core of Christianity, because that's the gospel. There's no gospel in Christianity if there's no death of Christ and there's no resurrection. So it it completely obliterates the Christian faith to say there's no death of Christ and no resurrection. What about the Holy Spirit? Do they have a place for him? Well, the Holy Spirit is not really a person. He is a force. He is uh, a presence, but he's not really a person. This is what sometimes the Muslims e- say. Yeah, and they sometimes equate the Holy Spirit uh, with, with, with Gabriel. So it's a little confusion. How could he not be a person? He's a force. But yet, uh, they also claim that he appeared to um, Muhammad when uh, Gabriel came. So maybe the power of the Holy Spirit is what uh, moved um, Gabriel to give Muhammad the message. But uh, he's not a, a person. He's not Certainly, he's not the third person of the Trinity. He's not God because there is no Trinity. And the worst blasphemy is to claim that the Trinity and that God has partners. There's no worse sin in Islam 
than to say that God has partners on par with him. That is the worst sin you could ever commit. So again, here's a clash between Christianity and the Islamic faith, something that is completely irreconcilable. We believe that God is one God, one nature, expressed in three persons. We believe that not because we can explain it. We believe that because that truth is revealed in Scripture. Now, if they don't have a need for salvation because man is inherently good, do they believe in the afterlife? Do they believe in heaven and hell? Oh, yeah, they believe in, they believe in hell like we believe in hell. Uh, they believe that you're going to be judged for your works and your deeds. Those that do more good works going to heaven, those who follow Allah. Uh, so they believe that. Uh, their idea of heaven, however, is uh, quite unlike our belief uh, in connection with heaven. Uh, and in actual fact, they believe in a heaven where there is a garden, uh, it's a time of bliss and, and fruits, there are rivers. And then, get this, you have pure, holy, voluptuous maidens that have never been touched. Uh, so really, it's a sensual religion that is almost like the Mormons. Yeah where your hope of heaven is that one day uh, you will be a god and you will have a goddess and you have your own planet and you'll be creating children throughout eternity and it will go on and go on and go on. The Muslims are looking to that kind of a sensual uh, heaven. Uh, so it's quite different than, than the Christian faith. They do believe that uh, in, in hell. Uh, they do believe in judgment. And they do believe that all people who are not Muslims will go to hell. Only people who are Muslims will go to heaven. So you have to become a Muslim to go there. Now here's the problem. People say that Christianity is totally exclusive, which it is. The Bible makes it very clear there's only one door. And people are condemning Christianity. Uh, I mean, man, they're so mad that we are so exclusive. But do you ever hear them condemning Islam? No. Nope. <laughs> they are as exclusive as the Christian faith. They believe in Allah. There's no other God but Allah. We believe there's no other God but Jehovah, Yahweh. We believe there's only one way to God. They believe there's only one way to God, and that way is through Muhammad the Prophet and through Allah and through the Muslim faith. So this, this, is, the, this is the unfair disparity. Why is there that disparity? I just think that the politicians in the Western world have become godless and become humanists. They've turned away from the Christian faith and it falls in line with their teaching on humanism and the embracing of Darwinism and the embracing of socialism. I think that these factors cannot uh, exist with a Christian mindset. So wouldn't that cause them also to take a stand against Allah, the God of the Muslims? That is going to come eventually because they okay. think I think that they are surrendering in an era, and they're going to regret it one of these days. As you see me, as you hear me this, they are going to regret because they are substituting Islam for Christianity. And if they know what Islam really is and what the intent is, they would have second thoughts about that. But in the West, where you've got, you see, you can only do what we're doing in the West. We've got freedom of speech. You can't do that in, in, in the Muslim world. You can't condemn Allah. You can't condemn uh, the teachings of Islam openly. You would lose your life. Yeah. They can only do that to Christianity. They're very fearful, even on the radio or in parliament. To How many people could tell uh, say that uh, Muhammad was a child abuser? They married a girl at nine years old. 
his wife. And uh, so he, he married a minor, and he had he committed a, uh, he's t- he had twenty different wives. He's a po- polygamist. Uh, he's he was anti God in his morals. How many people you know can get up and say that in any parliament, any part of the world, and not fear for their lives? How many people you know can say about the satanic verses? You remember the guy uh, Rashdi, I think it was, that he had written about the Quran and call it satanic verses, and they put a uh, they put a um, a kill out on him, mm-hmm. and he had to go into hiding. So in the West, we can cuss Christianity, we can cuss God, we can undermine Christ, and uh, without fear, Christians are not going to take up a gun and shoot you or whatever, but in Islam, they would. So they're criticizing Christianity. We have no recourse other than to defend it in the marketplace of ideas and try to defend the Christian faith. We're not going to pick up arms, but in Islam and the Islamic faith, you're looking at a different story, so therefore they are mute in regards to these things. What about the devil? Do they believe there's Satan? Yeah, they believe that there's a Satan, but he is a what you call, they call him Iblis, and he is a fallen, or what they call a fallen jinn. Now, a fallen jinn, or jinn, is another uh, species. A jinn is not same as human beings, it's not the same as angels. It's another like a, a different type of a spirit. Gens are all over the place. They're good gens and bad gens. And the devil has to be one of the bad gens. Now, we would say that Satan is a fallen angel, but they would not say that Satan is a fallen angel. He's a gen. Two different things altogether. Uh, he's a created being. Uh, the devil is. Uh, and uh, he was created from fire. And he is the, the, the tempter, basically. But he's like a, a, bad, a bad gen, like we would say, a bad angel. So the same concept, but again, their doctrine is different than us because we would say that Satan is a fallen angel. We would say that there's man, angel, and God. They would say there's God, man, angels, and jinns. So they've now created another level of, of being. And the final, final times, end times, judgment day. I know we could probably spend programs on that, but in a brief synopsis, what do they believe about end times? Well, in the end times, uh, they believe that they're looking for a Madi, M-A-H-D-I, uh, which is like we would call him our Messiah. We would say that we're looking for Christ to return, uh, the Messiah to return. They would say that the Madi that's going to come and return in the final phase is Jesus. He's coming back. Just be looking for Jesus. They're looking for Jesus to come back. Remember, Jesus didn't die. The reason why he didn't die, Allah took him to heaven and kept him in paradise to return him to the earth. When he returns, he is going to defeat the Antichrist. And then he's going to uh, allow the Muslims to rule. But then Jesus is going to marry, he's going to have children, and then he's going to die. He has to die. So, <laughs> very wow. strange eschatology. But that, in essence, is... The, and again, for people to say that there's no difference between the two religions, uh, clearly, this is illogical. Uh, there is no rhyme nor reason to, to suggest that these are reconcilable faiths. They're contrary to each other and poles apart in their belief system. I've asked you about almost every other religion or cult that we've been talking about. What are they doing well in the the Mormons and the uh, JWs? Was the organizational structure or the way in which they're going out and evangelizing? For Islam, what is Islam doing well? Well, uh, I think that they're using the petrodollars. 
to do to send out the missionaries all over the world, just like the West did it, America did it, uh, 1670s, 70s, etc. So it's a vast missionary movement. Uh, a lot of missionaries were going uh, from America. So what they're doing basically is using their petrodollars and they're spreading Islam all over the world. They're building their mosques. Uh, they're taking over churches that are closing. And I, I wish I could give you the statistics now, but every single week in America, I forgot the figure. It's a staggering figure how many churches are closing. Mm-hmm. They are taking over those churches and, and setting up their assemblies. The other thing that they've done a lot is to build family. Uh, concentrate on family like the the the, the Mormons that's mm-hmm. their big thing family is big everything is around the family the Muslims are also very very family oriented so as the home in the Christian church deteriorates the Muslim home is secure and it's a unit and again it will only take a while before when people begin to see the disintegration of the home that they need something needs to be put in place and they offer that kind of a solution the other thing of course is that uh, they marry religion with business, uh, and especially I mentioned the, the black Muslim uh, group. That is appealing to young people as well. So there is an uh, entrepreneurial enterprise spirit that is also part of, of, of that movement. Should we be doing that as Christians? Uh, that is something that, let me just put it this way. That is already being done not within fundamental circles. If you look at some of the programs we had even in our church of how there are Christian managers and professionals who are now going to third world countries and helping people start up micro-businesses, especially Christians. So it's being done now by even in, in the West and Christians are now doing that. So there was a time when they would send aid but they realize that in sending aid, you are undermining the businesses in those countries. So what you do, you go there, you might start a, a small bank where people pool together and they lend small amounts so they can get a machine to do, and maybe to do farming, whatever. So that is being done uh, even among Christians. But it took us a long time to try to catch up and see the, the, the vision uh, as far as that is concerned. I've often felt that Muslims allow their religion to control every aspect of their life. And in Western Christianity, there seems to be the trend to say, okay, I go to church on Sunday, but Christianity doesn't affect me during the week. Would you agree with that statement? That is uh, a statement that is so true. Let me just explain. That's the problem why the West is having problem dealing with Islamic countries. Islamic countries, it is not religion and politics. Politics and religion are not distinguished. When they're dealing with you, the Islamic faith is factored into their dealing with you. Now, this is where the West don't understand the Eastern world. Uh, uh, A Muslim leader could talk with you and uh, go, but he is lying to you because you're an infidel. He doesn't speak the truth to the infidel. See, so he can break, he can make a treaty with you and break a treaty because and that's in the Quran. Uh, yes, because uh, you don't make treaties with infidels, right? And you have a right. Uh, it's as though that, but that's the problem that the West has dealing with, like Iran or one of these countries that will promise and then they break the promise. And he said, "But wait a minute, we in the West wouldn't do that because they don't understand the the, the Muslim thinking." Remember that America is Satan. Remember, that's how they see America. America is Satan, the worst country on planet Earth. So why should we hold uh, with truth with you 
and we'll take advantage of you by telling you what you want, but in actual fact, we don't have to follow what we've signed to. I have a WhatsApp question that's come in from Antigua. Good night. I personally believe in Christ, and I am a Christian, but sometimes it is a bit hard when some persons propagate that Jesus is white and make me, being an African descent, feel lesser than. And the saddest thing is this is propagated by Christians, and it looks like it causes some persons to disfigure themselves because of the psychological damage because of such views. What do you think? I think that because Christianity uh, moved west instead of east, you read the book of Acts, where the Christian faith was being uh, carried to the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, Number one, you'll see that Africa got the gospel before Europe got the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter, uh, I think it's eight or nine. It's eight. Right. Uh, He was converted long before Lydia was converted. And Africa had the gospel before Europe had the gospel. But remember when Paul is going on his missionary journeys, he wants to go east. And God stopped Paul and sent him west uh, to Greece and to that part of the world. So providentially, that's how God led the Christian faith. Um, The problem is that because Christianity had spread into Europe, uh, if it had spread into Africa first as well, I suppose you would have the same situation that Europeans now put Christ, uh, pictures of Christ, he's a European. Christ is not a European, Christ is a Jew. Christ is more like what an Arab would look like. Right, he's not black either. He's not white either. He is uh, middle brown. Middle, middle brown. Yeah. That is what he would be. The problem that has happened is that because um, uh, that was done historical thing, and uh, all the pictures you have in in the books, etc., whatever it is, because most of them were uh, you d- dominated, and then it went to America, it went to to England, etc., etc. That could be a problem for people. Uh, I don't know why it should be a problem, because let me put it this way. He had to come through some race. Whether he came through the black race, or whether he come through the Chinese race, or whether he come through the Semitic race, the Hamitic race, the Caucasian race. Uh, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He had to come through one of those boys. He did not come through the Hamitic race. He did not come through the Caucasian race. He came through the Semitic race. But he had to come through the Jewish race. So... Uh, but he's not a black man. He's not a white man. And the fact, it, it, uh, let me just put it this way. We, <laughs> we have to uh, understand that he's a human and it's God coming and assuming human flesh. But he had to come to some individual ethnic group and the Jews were chosen by God to be the one to the Messiah would come. This has only become an issue uh, because I think a lot has to go back to slavery. It really does. All of the problems and all of the social issues and all the economic, all this confusion today goes back to the whole matter of the enslavement of blacks by the Europeans. Uh, And because of that, uh, Christianity, uh, which in some ways compromised with that and did not feel it and deal with it when it should have dealt with it, eventually it dealt with it, Uh, that has led people to have a distaste and that gives other people now to, 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 to push that. Uh, you know, it's a white man religion, it's a European religion. Uh, they enslaved us, so why should we be following them? But again, you've got to go back to Scripture 
and find out if what was done is endorsed by Christ. And uh, that should help to alleviate that. And let me just say to the, the, uh, the, the, the person who wrote that, your identity and your worth and your sense of dignity should never come from your pigmentation. It comes from the fact that you are made in the image of God. Amen. So you should feel, if God made you black, you should never apologize for being black. If God made you white, you should never apologize for being black. If God made you Chinese, you should never apologize. You are made in the image of God, and that's what gives you dignity, and that's where you should derive your worth from. By the way, if we never think that way, we can never have healing among races. And that is why it's so important that we get our value and our dignity and our, and our sense of, uh, of, of um, worth from the fact that we are made in the image of God. We are product of his, his handiwork. Thank you for the individual in Antigua who sent that question in. Very practical, valid question. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? We would love for you to call in or send it in. If you'd like to call in, you can call the phone number 268 268- 462-7420. If you'd rather not be put live on the air, but you still want to ask your question, you can send it in via WhatsApp or text message. Send it to 268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Uh, Nathan, let me uh, mention one other thing which I think is important. Um, Islam has no place for God as your father, a loving father. Uh, so you don't have a personal relationship? Uh, well, God is virtually unknown okay. in Islam. So the idea that God is your father is an offense to Islam because they see you as a seaman, as a, 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 a being completely separate from God. They don't understand the biblical concept that God has adopted us into his family by our faith in Jesus Christ and that we are in Christ and God treats us as a son. That is so alien to them. That is like bringing God down to your level. See, they don't have, that's why I say, their God is a God of terror and judgment and wrath. But the idea of compassion and uh, an affectionate God and a God who cares and loves and has this fatherly figure, they know nothing about that in the Quran. They know nothing about any Islamic faith. And that's part of the glory of the Christian faith. This is not something we are embarrassed about. This is something that uh, um, motivates us and encourages us and gives us a sense of even greater worth that we are now adopting the God's family. We are, if you read um, Hebrews, He's called our brother. See, uh, That kind of close connection, Islam knows nothing about. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about Islam and current day events. Uh, specifically, I know I've heard about the conflict of does Islam allow free speech? Do you have any thoughts on that topic? Well, I not only have thoughts, but I want to give you some statistics. And this is raw statistics that can be checked uh, if anybody wants to call in. Take the matter of free speech. The capacity that I should be able to talk, what I'm talking here about, I should be able to criticize Christianity, I should be able to criticize um, any other religion, uh, I should be able to speak my mind free on these kind of matters, uh, etc. Uh, ma- listen to the, the figures of how the, the Muslims think. In America, uh, 58% of Muslims say that if you criticize Islam or Muhammad, 
you should not be protected by free speech. You have no right to criticize Islam uh, or Muhammad. Um, 45% believe that people who mock Islam should face criminal charges. 38, uh, uh, 12% of Muslim Americans believe that blaspheming Islam is, should be punishable by death. Okay, forty-three uh, percent of American uh, Muslims believe that people of other faiths have no right to evangelize Muslims. Thirty-two uh, percent of Muslims in America believe that Sharia law should be the supreme law of the land. Remind me what Sharia law is. Sharia law is taking the Islamic laws in the Book of the Quran and placing them across the board and making the law of the country. It's like taking the Old Testament law and making the law of the land. So if you if you if you if you rob you only rob twice. You lose your hand first time, second hand. <laughs> right? That is basically uh, what we're talking about. Um, in Britain, 62% of British Muslims deny that you should be given free speech to say what you want to say about any religion. Now, this is in Britain, right? Um, so when you look at the, the, is the Islamic faith and what they believe, very, very clearly, uh, looking at these numbers, both in America and we're not talking about now what would be in those countries that are Islamic countries for sure. Right, you have no right to have free speech to criticize anything about Islamic faith. But now they've been transported to the West, and they are saying now that you should have Sharia law, you shouldn't have the freedom to criticize Islam and Muhammad. So, if they ever got the ascendancy in the West, you can be sure of one thing. There'll be censorship, and you're going to lose the capacity to speak freely on these matters. What's the biblical perspective on ISIS? Their view of ISIS in terms of the Islam uh, um, uh, and the Muslims, again, I want to give you some raw statistics. Al Jazeera, which is the, uh, the Arabic television channel, they did a survey, and... 81% of the respondents approve of what ISIS did. 81%. Okay. Where uh, was the study done? This is done by um, this was done by Al Jazeera.net uh, .net on their website. Okay. Um, I have the information I can pass it on to you after if you want to. But 81% say that they approve of the conquests and the caliphate that ISIS has established. 81%. A Pew poll was done, and 63 million to 287 million ISIS supporters in 11 countries were discovered through this this uh, this particular poll that they did. I'm talking about 297 million uh, literal uh, approve of the ISIS. Um, in Saudi Arabia, 92 percent of Saudis say that ISIS conformed. Islamic law, 92%. In America, 38% of the American Muslims say that the ISIS belief was correct. Now, this is in America. 38% of the Muslims in America. In Great Britain, half of all the Muslims in Great Britain supported ISIS. Wow. So, if we think that in the West, we are not headed to a dangerous zone as the Muslim population increases... We are living in a world of myth and fiction. 
And the West is going to wake up one day, but it may be really too late if they don't understand what is happening. They're thinking that Islam is like Christianity. You can tell Christians anything. And we've taken a lot from politicians, a lot from people. That's not Islam. This is a militant religion that is going to protect Allah and protect Muslim uh, Muhammad at all costs. Yeah. And you dare not insult Allah. You dare not insult Muhammad. You might lose your head and not figuratively either, literally. So should we as Christians be militant like that in order to uh, gain the ascendancy again? I don't think that we should be militant in the sense that we censor. But I do think we should be militant in, if I'm a politician, I bring my faith into politics. The idea, Islam will never divorce their faith from their politics. If a Muslim comes into a a political position, he will try to influence uh, the world of politics with his religion. What we've done in the West, we've compartmentalized our lives, as you pointed out earlier. We got our home life, we got our church life, we got our work life, we got our academic life, whatever it is. It is not all inter, inter, intermeshed. Christianity should pervade every aspect of my life. If I'm a manager or a CEO in a company, my Christian faith should influence my practices, my honesty, my dealing with people. Uh, and if I'm a politician, my Christian principles should be brought to bear upon my office so that I am not guilty of corruption and evil and, and underhandedness. I'm above board and I defend morality and defend the Christian faith, defend the Bible without any apology whatsoever. And if I lose my my, my, uh, my office, I lose my office. But to be silent just to maintain my political standing it's a sacrifice my Christian religion and my Christian faith, and it's offense to God that we would choose to uh, fear man rather than fear God. Can you be silent and still be a Christian? Because didn't Christ say, if you refuse to uh, proclaim my father, uh, that he will not... Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, in other words, if you don't confess me before, man, I wouldn't confess you before. Uh, Thank you. That is true, generally speaking, but let's be very honest as well. We have the, a silent disciple in the person of Nicodemus. Okay. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, on two or different occasions. He spoke out, but he didn't do it in a public way, and eventually he was very, very clear. I think it is possible that a Christian can be intimidated. A lot has to do with boldness, how bold we are. When you finally understand your identity in Christ and you really appreciate what Christ has done for you, and when you realize you're just dealing with another human being, uh, I told people this. I learned a long time ago, long, long time ago, that whether a man with a PhD or he had five PhDs or whether he was a medical doctor or professor, my thinking has always been he's just a man, just like I am. Uh, he might have gotten a study in a certain area that I didn't do, but I, he doesn't intimidate me. And because I am so convinced of the truth of Scripture, there's nothing he can say to move me because I am convinced of the truth of Scripture. So I can whatever he says to me, he can shout, he can bring arguments that he believes. I am settled that this is the Word of God. And there are arguments and reasoning and passages of Scripture that can defend that. So I am not intimidated. Uh, I wish that that were true of other Christians, and they're not afraid to speak out and be intimidated. And the other thing, that people don't want to be called intolerant. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, they want to talk. Um, give me another term there. Uh, that you are narrow-minded. Uh, that you are not loving. You're not Christ-like. Uh, that you are discriminating against other people, uh, and uh, people don't like to hear that. But again, if you're going contrary to Scripture, uh, and uh, you violate Scripture, there's no question you're absolutely wrong. And I am not discriminating when I tell you that you're wrong. As a matter of fact, I'm showing you more love by telling you the truth than remaining silent for you to embrace falsehood. With the whole ascendancy of the Me Too movement and uh, the ladies coming out and saying I was raped, what does Islam as a whole say about rape? Well, it's not what Islam... Islam is not going to endorse rape in the Quran. Okay. But the truth of the matter is, when you look at Islam practice, uh, take what is happening in Europe since they've opened the doors to all these Muslims to come into Europe. Just let me use a few examples. Take uh, Denmark for just a moment. Um, since they've allowed such a great population of Muslims to enter Denmark, the country is now one of the, the eighth of the tenth countries in the world with the highest rate of, of rape. That is since there was this influx of Muslims. Um, the statistics are, are, are bothersome, um, especially the Somalis who were allowed to come into to Denmark. The level of rape among the Danish women uh, is just phenomenal. And half, uh, more than half of those convicted of rape are Iraqis and people from Iran. But that has only happened. That level of rape has only happened since. I don't know if it's because women are covered totally and then they come to these uh, these Norwegian countries and women dress so scantily uh, that their hormones get the best of them and they just see women as chattel because really Islam, women are not treated on the same level as men, basically. Uh, so I think that in Norway, for example, there is what you call a rape epidemic, epidemic uh, in, in Norway. Uh, and again, it has only happened since the Muslims were allowed and the door was opened to the Muslims. The, the, the rape rate just escalated. In Sweden, uh, the, it's now the highest uh, level of rape uh, number two in the world and again that has now happened because of the influx of the, the Muslims who have come in there um, so it is uh, six times the rape level in Sweden is six times higher than it is in America even though Sweden's population is minuscule in comparison uh, uh, to America so there are a lot of huge level of immigrants who have come into these Scandinavian countries. And Germany, too, is, is having the same problem. Even in England, uh, it's having the same problem. So it is one thing to to say that the Koran or whatever it is, there's no authorization to, to rape women. But when they go into the Western world and they become exposed now to scantily dressed women, it's as though they've lost control of their passion. 
In summary, as we've been discussing the religion of Islam for the last two weeks, are Christianity and Islam compatible? Are they worshiping the same God? Absolutely not. You're dealing with uh, apple and pears. There's such a difference, a diversity in beliefs uh, among these two groups that there's no parity between them. They're completely opposites. Thank you for joining us for another episode of That's Truth. We really enjoyed your interaction. We look forward to joining you again next week here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Next week, we're going to be talking about the cult of Christian science. What do they teach and how does it compare to the Bible? Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.